When was the last time you looked in a kaleidoscope? For me, I think it's been about a week. So with kids in the house who want me to play with them all the time, I can enjoy their toys without looking weird. And one toy I honestly really enjoy is the kaleidoscope. I mean, you look into it, and it's just it's beautiful, provided there's light around, right? There's so many colors, there's, there's uh, different facets, there's various shapes, and, and as you twist the, the scope, you see those colors just appear in, in many different designs and different perspectives, and each one comes as exquisitely beautiful as the one before. Well, since I know you all have wondered this, uh, I did some research this past week and found out that located in Mount Tremper, New York, is the world's largest kaleidoscope. So it's a walk-in, 60-foot-tall, converted grain silo designed for $250,000 in the 1960s by some people known as hippies. Uh, you can fit up to 20 people at one time. You kind of enter and you, you lean back on padded walls and you look up towards the ceiling and enjoy a 10-minute show, which one review calls frenzied fractal imagery. So I've been thinking about what our first trip should be as a new church, and I think I've got it. So look for an announcement. We are hitting the road up to New York. Well, the passage we come to this morning in our second study here in the book of Ephesians is a portion of scripture that one person has described as a kaleidoscope of dazzling lights and shifting colors. So Paul originally wrote this letter of Ephesians in the Greek language. And the passage that we're looking at this morning from verse 3 all the way up to verse 14 is one sentence in Greek. So Paul starts off talking about the gospel, and it seems he's so overcome by its dazzling light that he just can't stop talking about it. He forgets to use periods as he looks at God's grace from all sort of different angles and facets in all different lights, like a giant kaleidoscope of God's amazing grace towards us. He can't, he can't pause enough to take a breath. He just keeps going and going. And studying this passage this past week has honestly left me a little bit breathless as well alongside Paul. So in this space of 12 verses, he sort of rejoices in an avalanche of praise to God for his sovereign love and salvation and all these wonderful things that we've been blessed with in Christ. I mean, think about like a snowball. Right? As it kind of accelerates down a hill. As it gets faster and faster, it, it gathers more and more. And, and like that, Paul just becomes increasingly overcome by all these truths. And so he just keeps talking about them and bringing on more and more. He doesn't want to stop. And it's this passage that we have the great joy of studying together as a church this morning. It's one of the densest, one of the richest passages in Scripture. And so I pray that we come to it humbly and expectantly. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Ephesians. We'll be right there leaving off or picking up where we left off last week in chapter 1. And today we'll be looking at verses 3 to 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you just to sit back and listen as, as I read for us. If you don't have a Bible at home that you usually use or that you can read well, uh, we have Bibles we'd love to give you out on the connect table. So grab one of those on, the, on your way out. Let me read for us Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. It's one sentence, folks. One sentence of worship to God. And if you look there in verse 3, you'll see how Paul begins. He begins with praise. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So everything Paul is going to say here is in this context of worship. So he's not first and foremost here kind of lecturing us in theology and what we should think about God. He's not merely defending a certain viewpoint of doctrine. No, he's rejoicing. He's looking at the news that he's been saved and he is praising God. He blesses God, who has blessed us. So I don't know about you, but when I was in school, I was told often to stay away from what my professors called broad general statements. So if I said, for example, that, you know, every scholar agrees with this argument that I'm making, uh, my teachers would would, uh, rightly challenge that, right? So they would say, you can't back that up. You can't back up that that claim. So I just made an assumption that every educated person always agreed with that point of view. So little by little and grade by grade, I learned not to do that. But Paul here is not worried about that in the least. He's confident that God has blessed us in Christ with what? With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So he's saying for those who are united to Christ by faith... They have every spiritual blessing. Every one. So he doesn't say many blessings, right? We might say that to each other. Many blessings. Or he doesn't even say innumerable blessings. He says every last one. And notice that this isn't just a promise for the future. No, this, this sentence is in the past. Christians have every spiritual blessing now. That word spiritual is important. Paul's not talking about material blessings here, things that we could purchase or kind of stockpile. So from time to time, you, you'll hear preachers who claim to preach the Bible, and they'll tell you that because you're a Christian, you should expect 
blessings from God like this. So blessings like financial freedom or material prosperity or favor in the workplace. Paul's not thinking about that at all. In fact, Paul's writing this letter from prison. He's under house arrest in Rome for preaching about Jesus. So from the world's perspective, his life is a wreck. He has no success. He can't even leave his home. These blessings are spiritual. They have nothing to do with our worldly status, but our spiritual status. And that word spiritual means that they come through what? They come through the Spirit of God. And they're found in the heavenly places. Not meaning heaven, per se, but meaning the, the kind of the spiritual realm of reality in our lives. And there in verse 4, we see that God has planned from eternity to bless us like this. So Paul writes that God chose us in him, so that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So Paul kind of goes on a bit of a time warp here. And he thinks back to before the world existed, before there was even time at all. He says that even before the world existed, even before we were made, even before we sinned against him, he chose to save us in Christ to make us holy and blameless. What does that tell us about God? What what does that passage show us about our creator? He's full of mercy, isn't he? I mean, what amazing love would cause our God to save us before he even created us, to seek us and call us to himself even before we had turned our backs on him? Friends, this God is so merciful. He is in control of everything. He has created and sustains everything. And in that all-encompassing power, he has planned to save you and to save me through Christ. So Christian, you are not an afterthought to God. He has set his love on you from eternity. So the next time you feel worthless, the next time you feel like life isn't worth the energy you're putting into it, Think beyond yourself to this plan of God that includes you if you're in Christ. I want to pause here and just air some hesitation that some of you might feel at this point. So we've seen here from Ephesians that God has chosen us for salvation through his son. And that means that it's nothing we deserve. It's nothing that we somehow chose It's not because God at some point kind of knew that we would end up choosing him and so he kind of put that in his plan. I mean, the words here, and we'll see this again in chapter 2, shows that God turned to us when we could not turn to him. He planned to bring us to himself. So historically, in the teaching of the Christian church, this is called uh, the doctrine of God's divine election. So that word election, I think at this time of year, brings in all kinds of crazy thoughts for us. Try to put that aside. All this means is that God chose us, elected certain people to trust in him. And that plan exists from before the world created was created. And so I think as human beings, as we think about this, certain questions come up for us. So maybe things like, is that loving of God to do that? I mean, is it loving for God to draw some to himself, but not others? Is that even fair? I mean, isn't that, is that even right? Is that the way God should operate? 
Well, friends, I, I encourage you to ask those questions. Those are inc- questions we should ask, and they're important. I'd love to discuss them more with you. But, but let's just see here that Paul doesn't set this out as kind of a, a theological position for us to hash back and forth. Now, he's talking about election. He's talking about God's choice of his people in the context of worship. So he's embarking on this big praise song to God. And part of the reason he wants to worship God is because God has chosen him. That truth doesn't lead Paul to be proud. It leads him to be humble. It doesn't lead him to just kind of do whatever he wants because God chose him anyway. It leads him to want to be holy and blameless. And it doesn't lead him to just kind of be like, you know, I won't tell other people about this because, you know, God's going to save them anyway. No, it leads him to be zealous for the glory of God. So as we continue in this passage, let's, let's do so with this heart posture of Paul's. A heart posture of humility and worship. If you find yourself evaluating whether you agree with Paul here, I encourage you to instead be humble and allow this passage to evaluate you and show you more and more of God's love in Christ. Let's pray that we can be like the great preacher of the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, who once said, election sets the soul on fire with enthusiastic delight in God. Oh, that the Lord would give us enthusiastic delight in him this morning. Let's seek that together, church, as we come to this passage. For the rest of our time together, we're going to look at this passage in three main sections. We're going to look at three main spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Three ways God has blessed us. And once we're, we're done with that, we'll spend 60 seconds, 90 seconds, looking at two quick observations, and then we'll be done. So that's our plan. Uh, and heads up, the first point will be our longest. So when we're done with point one, we'll go to point two, and we'll go into point three, and then we'll finish up with two quick observations. But quickly, before we do that, let me just say again, tagging back on our service last week, our sermon last week, that these blessings, notice, come to us only in Christ. So in this passage, we see that phrase, in Christ, or through Christ, or in the beloved, meaning Jesus. We see that 11 times in these short verses. Paul thinks this is really important for us to understand. And and last week, we looked at what it means to be in Christ. And what we saw is that As Christians, our identity is not ours anymore. So our identity is not in our sin. It's not in in our own um, selves. Our identity is now rooted and joined to Christ. That means we've been covered by his righteousness. We've been made acceptable to him. And that means that Jesus' status and position are ours in him. We have his status We have his position. We are hidden in him. We talked a little bit bit about what it means to be in the line of Adam. Remember that? If you were here this this last week, um, to be descended from Adam, to have his sin problem be our sin problem. And now what it means to be in Christ is that we've been transferred now to another line. And we are now in Christ. And that means that all, as, as all of Adam's sin was ours, now all of Christ's perfection is ours. And so as we look at these three main blessings... Remember that they can only come to us in Christ. Paul is writing here to Christians. And the first spiritual blessing we see here is that we are adopted by the Father. We are adopted by the Father. Look there in verse 5. 
Paul says, in love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So in his great love, God has chosen us. We've seen that. But for what? Well, he's chosen us for adoption. To be his sons and his daughters. And, and that implies that at one point, we weren't that, right? We were not God's family. We were not adopted into his family. We were not his sons and daughters. So in other passages, we see that actually, in fact, we were God's enemies. Our sin separated us from him. And we were children of the devil. That's the phrase the Bible uses. The devil who was what? The, the biggest rebel of all. And so not only were we outside of God's family, but we were actively oppressing and opposing God. We set ourselves up against him and sought to, to shake off his authority on our lives. God is holy. So God is pure and righteous and he's too good to merely tolerate that sin and, and brush it off. He's too just to overlook our failures and, and just kind of say, uh, do better next time. No, in our sin, God is a judge. He's faithful judge. He's diligent to hand down punishment. It doesn't mean he's just kind of like a, a stickler for the rules or a mean dad who likes to just point out everything that's wrong with you. No, God's not on trial here. We are. We are the ones who are deserving of a sentence of justice, of a rightful condemnation. So where, where's the good news in this? Why is Paul praising God? Well, he says something now has happened to change that. God has made us in Christ, united us to Christ. And we think about that. That means, like what we just said, we share Christ's position. And what is Christ's position? He's God's son, he has all the rights and privileges to God himself because he's God's son. And so in him, church, we are God's sons. Now all Jesus' rights and privileges and access belong to us. God hasn't just made us his servant, so that would have been more than merciful of him to do. He didn't just take us in as long as we commit to kind of work our way back up to a acceptable level of performance. Now, out of his grace, he adopted us as his very own. God, Christians, is your father. I mean, imagine if you wanted really badly to say something to the president of the United States. I mean, perhaps you had like this big cause you were passionate about, just wanted five minutes of his time, right? Do you think you would get a meeting? I mean, probably not. I mean... Even if you had a chance, it would take probably months of a kind of jumping through hoops and, and wading through bureaucracy. And I, I don't care what the movies might say. There's no kind of underground waterway where you can just bump into the president, Nicolas Cage style. That won't happen. So if you're persistent enough, you may get to the president and come to your meeting and find it's one of his junior staff, right? Better, not, better off not even trying. But now imagine something a little different. Imagine you needed to talk with the president and it just so happened that the president was your father. Well, everything would be different, right? That red tape, those calls, that waiting periods, all of that would just go away. It wouldn't exist. All you need to do is go up to the Oval Office and the president would welcome you in. He would hear you out. 
He would assure you of his love for you and he would ask you to come back anytime you want. Friends, the one who has all authority, the one whose rule supersedes the most powerful presidents and prime ministers, that king of the universe is your father, Christian. He's adopted us. Now he treats us like he treats Jesus, his own precious son. Let let that sink in. I mean, think, for example, about this verse. So, Gospel of John, chapter 11, Jesus lifts his voice in prayer to God and he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. And now think, that's your prayer. Your father will always hear you because your father always hears your older brother. He always hears Christ. And you're in Christ. And so when you go to God, you'll never find him occupied with other things. You'll never find him distracted with pressing matters. He's your father. He's always ready to hear and to help. One theologian, J.I. Packer, puts it this way. God receives us as sons and loves us with the same steadfast affection with which he eternally loves his beloved only begotten son. There are no distinctions of affection in the divine family. We are all loved just as fully as Jesus is loved. Isn't that unbelievable? I mean, Jesus' fellowship with his father is now our fellowship with his father. We are now inextricably linked to this family, this, this church of adopted brothers and sisters. And as we grow in our faith, we'll begin to look more and more like our older brother. More and more like Christ. We'll begin to bear that family resemblance until we become holy and blameless and see him face to face. So Christian, do you see how wonderful it is that you know God as your father? I mean, all of us have had different experiences with our earthly fathers. So some of you may have had a father who was nice, but negligent. So he was sort of uninvolved and disconnected from you. Some of you may have had an abusive father uh, who took out his anger or lust on you or your siblings or your mother. Some of you may have had a perfectly wonderful father who had his flaws, yes, but he was, he was great. He was kind. He was compassionate. Some of you may not have known your father as much at all. But Christian, regardless of who your earthly father may be, you are united to Christ. And one of the myriad blessings that comes to you in that relationship is knowing God as father. He will never leave you. This father will never forsake you. This father will always intimately know what you need. This father will discipline you, but do so perfectly and faithfully. This father will protect you and save you and bring you home. Your identity has been changed. You relate to God now, not on the basis of your performance or your behavior, but as his son. Christian, this is revolutionary. No other religion thinks like this. No other religion sees God like this. And this is incredibly freeing. I mean, listen to these words from a Christian woman who was reflecting on this. She says, Adoption is a legal procedure which secures a child's identity in a new family. And God didn't choose to be our foster parent. 
We don't get kicked out of the family because of our behavior. We don't have to worry day to day whether or not we're good enough to be part of this family. In his infinite kindness, God made us a permanent part of his family. Nothing can undo that legal procedure that binds me to Christ. He signed the adoption papers, so to speak, with his blood. So Christian, what would it look like this week for you to live like this is true? What might your week look like differently than it did this past week as you think about God as your father? Maybe more time in prayer? Maybe more boldness asking him to help you? Maybe less time worrying about the future? Knowing that he cares for you as he cares for his son? Maybe less energy poured out trying to prove prove yourself to others in the family of God? Maybe more energy invested in growing in holiness and bearing that family resemblance? One writer has said, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. Well, that's the first blessing we see here, and that's our longest point. The next two will be a bit briefer. So we are adopted by the Father. The second blessing is that we are redeemed by the Son. So we are redeemed by the Son. Look there in verse 7. In him that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Paul says that through the blood of Christ, we have redemption. That word redemption means to be set free from slavery because a ransom has been paid. To be set free from slavery because our ransoms have been paid. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you could think back to the book of Exodus where we see God's Old Testament people of Israel. And, and where are they? They're in slavery, right? They're in slavery in Egypt. And, and God determines to bring them out from that, to save them from that slavery. But Pharaoh, who's the, the king, the ruler of Egypt, will have nothing of that. He won't lose this valuable stock of slaves. And so the Lord begins this series of judgments on Egypt, this continuous stream of plagues and misery, so that Pharaoh will just let Israel go free. And that last plague is terrible. God will send death and kill every firstborn in Egypt. And it happens. Pharaoh is stubborn, and so God sends this last plague. And the Egyptians respond with despair. But then you look at Israel, and their children are spared. Their firstborns are not killed. God has provided a way of escape. And and what was that? It was by killing a lamb and smearing that lamb's blood on the door of the house so that when the plague came, it would pass by, knowing that something else was killed instead. And that's the background of these words we see here in the second blessing we have in Christ. We have been delivered from slavery, from bondage to sin, and the death we deserve. But that deliverance has not happened without a big price. Now the price of the ransom to be paid was the life of Jesus himself. God 
gave us all the lavish riches of his grace. He poured out his love on us and forgave our sins. And he ransomed us from slavery all because Jesus paid it all. Jesus bore our penalty when he shed his blood on the cross. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, I understand this might sound strange. Christians talk a lot about blood. But that's because we think it's good news. We know it's good news that the death we deserve for our rebellion against God has been placed on somebody else. Has been placed on Christ. You see, we, as we just said, were God's enemies. But God did not leave us like that. He loved us. He sent his son to die the death that we deserved and to rise again so that now if we will repent and turn and place our trust in him, we will be saved. We'll be set free because our ransom has been paid. And friend, that invitation is open to you this morning. There's no other way to be spared God's judgment. Only in Christ will you be passed over and delivered. If you have more questions about that, I get that completely. These can be difficult things to understand, but we believe that they are so important. This is a matter of life and death. And so please, if you have questions, talk to me after the service. Um, Email me this week. Talk to somebody sitting next to you or somebody you've seen uh, standing up here. We'd love to talk with you more about what it means to know that Jesus has redeemed you. And Christian... Maybe you're like me, and you are in the middle of this one sentence of Paul just having an outburst of praise, and honestly, you don't feel it. I mean, your, your past week was fine. It wasn't terrible. You got things done. You have a few fun things for Monday, you know, Labor Day, and this week's coming up. You're content with the way life is going. God's blessed you. As far as excitement, as far as passion about the things that Paul is passionate about, well, it's been a while since you felt that way. If that's you, let me just bring you in on what, what has convicted me personally this week and, and ask you a question. When was the last time you meditated on how much you have been forgiven? No, seriously, when was, when was the last time you kind of looked at the ways that you've sinned against God and kind of taking an inventory of your offenses against him. Bitterness against a family member. Maybe a long-standing struggle with pornography or anger. Maybe constant worry about the future that just controls you. Maybe just pride that makes you think you're pretty much better than anybody who struggles with with those three things here in the church. Consider what deliverance from your slavery looked like for Jesus. See how he died to set you free. Meditate on that. Ask God to grow you in your love for him as you contemplate his mercy. We are in Christ. We are covered by his blood. Now we love much because we have been forgiven much. Paul continues there in verse 9 and he says that, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. Paul will use this word mystery again in Ephesians, and what he means is not something that's hard to understand, but something that has previously been hidden and now has been revealed. So if you like reading mystery novels or watching 
whodunit movies, you'll understand this in a way, right? So usually there's this crisis, there's a crime or an event, and, and there's doubt as to who's involved and how they're involved. And so throughout the mystery, pieces start coming together, and then maybe at the last chapter, the last page, the curtain comes up. And everything is light, and you know exactly what has happened. So the guy who seemed suspicious the whole time was actually the undercover detective. Uh, the straight-laced woman who seemed nice was an accomplice. And the murderer was actually the butler all along, right? Well, it's kind of what Paul's talking about. He's talking about God's plan to save sinners. And he understands that throughout the Bible, we've seen bits and pieces and hints of how, Jesus, how God is going to do that. And, and then we get to Christ, And the curtain is raised, and we see everything clearly. The whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is one big story culminating in this. God's plan to redeem and to unite everything in Christ. That word there, unite, has this idea of summing everything up. So, you take everything and just sum it up, and it makes sense under the ruler, Jesus. His reign makes sense of everything. Under his kingship, peace is established once and for all. We've seen hints of this, we've tasted this, but this will finally come when Jesus returns and brings justice and judgment to the world. And we'll think about this more next week. So this week, look ahead at verses 15 to 23 and read that maybe. And if you're thinking about questions you have, and we'll consider more next week what it means that Jesus is the head of everything. But just think about what this means today. All the discord, all the sin, all the corruption that we see in the world and in our hearts will be set right when Jesus reigns over all. Only when everything is subjected to his rule where they, will there be rest. That's God's plan. And believe it or not, you and I are part of it. We're part of this plan to unite everything in Christ. Paul here is under house arrest. He could maybe walk 10, 20 feet if the guard let him. But his mind is captured by this eternity of blessing and this eternal plan of God that spans all the years. So church, what has you discouraged this morning? What, what brings you to church irritated and frustrated? Think of that. Think, think of what it might be. And now think of that in light of this master plan of God to unite everything in Christ. How might that cosmic vision of God's plan that you're a part of change your focus, pull your attention from peace in your circumstances and root it in your king? Well, we've looked at two blessings. We're adopted by the Father. We are redeemed by the Son, Finally, let's see how we are sealed by the Spirit. Sealed by the Spirit. Verse 11. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. 
So Paul here is talking to the Old Testament people of Israel, God's people. We know that because there in verse 12, he speaks of those who were the first to hope in Christ. So he says the gospel went first to the Jews, and, and, and they have an inheritance, right? So something already possessed, but still coming. Something promised, but something they're still waiting for. And, and actually, that, that verb there in verse 11 should be translated more passively. Actually, God is the subject of that verb. So it's not so much that Israel has obtained an inheritance, they've gotten an inheritance. No, it's that they are made an inheritance. They belong to God. They're God's possession. If you think about that, that theme goes throughout all of Scripture. Last week in our Old Testament reading, we read Moses talking to, his, to God's people Israel in Deuteronomy 7, and he says, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. And here we see it again. God has worked in such a way to make his chosen people, Israel, his precious possession, his precious people. And it wasn't because they were special or famous. Now Moses will go on to say that they were the fewest of all the peoples. It's only because God loved them that he chose them. Israel was chosen to be God's inheritance because he chose them in his mercy. And the wonderful thing we see here now is that that was just a foreshadowing of God's new people. He's looked there in verse 13. In him, you also. Paul was talking about the Jews. Now he's talking about the Gentiles. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is what? The guarantee of our inheritance. See, in verse 11, Paul starts off talking about we, the Jews. Then in verse 13, he goes to you, the Gentiles. And now he finishes up with we, our inheritance. The Jews were God's chosen people, but now those who were outcasts have been brought near. That's us, Gentiles, non-Jews. We are now made God's inheritance. This new people from every language, from every tongue, both Jew and Gentile. And there in verse 14, we see that not only are we God's inheritance, but we have an inheritance too. We have a hope of a future glory, of living in the presence of God, the God we were made to worship. There we will find all that our heart longs for. There we will find our inheritance. J.I. Packer says, Our father's wealth is immeasurable, and we are to inherit his whole estate. And meanwhile... Just so we have assurance that this inheritance will finally be ours, God has given us a seal. This idea of a, of a seal is kind of like the, the imagery of a mark that a, a owner of cattle would put on his livestock with a branding iron. It's a permanent seal to indicate that this piece of livestock belongs to me, to no one else. On giving us the Holy Spirit, God has given us a seal, a mark that shows that we belong to him, a promise that the joy we have now in the Spirit as he works in us is just the beginning. There's much, much more in store. And finally there, we see that the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. So again, that, that word is like the word down payment for us. 
Jesus is a down payment on all the fullness of God's riches towards us. So if you've ever bought a car or a house or something you had to pay for in installments, maybe a dentist bill, um, you might know what a down payment is, right? So you took the car, you started to drive it, wasn't quite yours yet. You moved into the house, you started to live in it, wasn't quite yours yet. You paid a down payment, but the full price was yet to be paid. In the same way, the Holy Spirit is this first installment of our heavenly inheritance. Jesus has graciously given us in the Spirit a taste of what it will look like to be fully saved, perfectly holy, perfectly blameless, rejoicing forever in the life of God. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. And here we get an idea of why Jesus has given us this meal to share. He's given it to us as a, as a tangible way for us to look forward to our inheritance. So in the same way that, that this bite of bread and this swallow of juice prime our hunger midway through a Sunday morning and make us think what lunch will taste like, so the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us excites us to know more of Christ, to hunger after him, to look forward to the day when we will see him. So as we share in this table soon, I encourage you to pray and ask for that hope. Ask for a greater love for the inheritance coming. Well, there we are. We've made it through this sentence. Three blessings in Christ. Adopted by the Father. Redeemed by the Son. Sealed by the Spirit. Before we finish, though, I want to really quickly point out two phrases that maybe you've seen running throughout this text. So the first one you see is there in verse 5, where Paul talks about being adopted according to the purpose of God's will. And then in verse 11, we have been made God's possession, what? According to the purpose of him, who, what? Works all things according to the counsel of his will. So church, remember Again, that this salvation plan has been God's will all along. To send his son, to save us, to send his spirit, to call us to himself. God has orchestrated all of history like a grand composer of a huge symphony. All so that we might be saved and he might be glorified. So again, let's finish by reminding ourselves of this vision of God. He is expansive. His plan is over all. And yet he has stooped to have mercy on us. And the second phrase to draw your attention to is found in verse 6. God has adopted us there at the end to the praise of his glorious grace. And again in verse 12, the Jews were the first to hope in Christ to the praise of his glory. And finally, at the end of our passage in verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the down payment on our inheritance. What? To the praise of his glory. Church, we have been created. We have been pursued. We have been saved all for God's glory. He's brought us back to what we were created for, to give him worship. We are most human when we are worshiping God and glorifying him. And so Paul wraps up this 202-word sentence the same way he began it. He started off with praise, and he ends by giving all glory to God. Church, our life in Christ begins and ends with this with God getting the glory. So, 
what a passage. What truths we see here. Reading this long sentence is like trying to, to drink water from a fire hose. We can't possibly drink in all of these truths in a mere 40 minutes. But Jesus understands our weak natures. He understands that we'll have a hard time grasping him in all his beauty. And so, in his mercy, he's given us a tangible way to remember who he is. To remember who we are in Christ. He's given us a meal to share. So let's come soon and remember that God has adopted us as his children. That we are redeemed through the blood of Christ. And that we're sealed for an inheritance to come. Let's pray together. Our Father, what amazing truths to consider this morning. We who were your enemies have been made your children. We who were under the sentence of death have been redeemed by your Son. We who were penniless orphans destined for despair have been given an inheritance it's far greater than anything we could ever have in this world. And so like Paul, we praise you this morning. We worship you. And we ask that you would be exalted in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.